If someone were afraid of the dentist, maybe they haven't been in a long time, maybe they're embarrassed because they haven't been in a while, I feel like this would be a really safe place for them to go and get the care that they need. At Advanced Dentistry, we get it. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, if you want to learn how IV sedation can change your life, visit NoFearDentist.com. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Master Force Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Master Force tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. My concern was that that wasn't going to stick, that I gave it less than a 5% probability that this was going to go quietly. Um, and I was highly concerned that, that um, not only had the Titanic hit the iceberg, but we were already tilting. Welcome back to Fraudsters. I'm Cena Gaznavi. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Justin Williams, justinwilliamscomedy.com. Of course, at Cena Now, you can find me there. This is our last episode, guys. This is amazing. This is the first season of Fraudsters, but it is the last episode of this first season. It's been an amazing experience. We don't know if we're going to have a season two yet, so uh, we're not going to ask you to do anything you don't want to do. But if you did choose to, talk to or at Spotify podcast. Let them know how much you love our show. That would be very kind. But either way, we're going to constantly be bringing you more fraudsters uh, next season for sure. Justin, how, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, th- I feel very good about this. I, I want to thank all the listeners. I want to thank everybody uh, who wrote to us, everybody that's on the community line. I want to thank everybody. I want to thank everybody at Spotify. I want to thank everybody at the Spotify accounting department in advance for the gen- for the generous contract that they are now outlining. That's just what I heard. <laughs> it's just what you heard. Yeah. Well, we got some work to do. We've we've built this entire mountain of Enron here and now we get to see it all come down. So while we know that Enron broadband and a whole host of other investments are are doing absolutely terribly at Enron, the stock price didn't reflect that. By the time Enron had changed CEO from Ken Lay to Jeff Skilling, Enron was fucking on fire. So Skilling was just like president CEO. He came in as as CEO in February 2001. So at the end of 1999, Enron stock was up 58%. By the end of 2000, Enron stock was up 89%. Revenues were over $100 billion. Enron is on fire! Skilling, Lay, and Festa <laughs> all got seven-figure payouts, right? Because they were doing such a good job. The stock was trading at the end of 2000 at around $89 per share. Goldman Sachs, these very fancy men over at Goldman and these smart people with their Ivy League education, set a price target of $110 for Enron. 
Skilling was using every superlative in the book to drive up the stock price. This is the craziest acid trip ever. Meanwhile, Arthur Anderson is having meetings on whether they should even keep Enron as a client. But guess what? They can't lose those fees because they were getting around $100 million a year from Enron in just fees. So they're stuck. They stayed in. But remember, the tech bubble burst in the spring of 2000. So the fallout was continuing through the end of the year, which meant investors and journalists are not looking for those bull stories anymore. People doing crazy new things, new businesses are popping up, pets.com is so cool. They're not looking for those stupid stories anymore. They're looking for the bears. They're looking for the losers. They're looking to place bets on the downtrend or shorting a company. Bethany McLean, one of the co-authors of The Smallest Guys in the Room, started poking holes in the financials. She started noticing that things didn't look right. And she even got to interview Skilling, who got very agitated with her. And he said, quote, when McLean was asking him questions like, how do you account for these losses? What are these outside companies that you're using? How is Enron Broadband actually making money? Skilling was just agitated. And he said this, I quote, I would really appreciate it if you would sit down with our finance and accounting teams. It's unfair to us and unethical if you don't take the time to understand our business. We are doing it purely right. People who raise questions are people who have not gone through our business in detail. People who raise questions. Are you fucking kidding me? People who don't understand want to throw rocks at us. We have explicit answers, but people would like to take them down based on ignorance. Yo, accounting tips that they don't want you to know about, right? I mean, come on. This is textbook Kevin. Come on. Are you? Yeah, I love the gaslighting too. I mean, if you mean to tell me that you're suspicious of Blockbuster producing $53 million of revenue for us, then you are crazy and don't know anything about business. <laughs> Blockbuster is a cash cow, baby. And I have to say, I, I would be, it'd be crazy not to bring up the fact that, you know, Bethany McLean is a woman going to like a very ego-driven Jeff Skilling. So I'm sure that had something to do with it. But kudos to her for sticking with this thing and helping to bring fucking Enron down. McLean kept asking questions. She asked about these outside entities. And later, McLean meets with Fastow. And she asks him, what's up with these outside entities? Fastow says, the run, this is beautiful. Fastow says they're run by an independent person that they can't disclose for confidentiality reasons. <laughs> it's him. It's him. He's the Wizard of Oz. It's so I love it. I love it that that's, that's the way they think like, you know, a publicly traded corporation can function, right? It's like, we can't tell you who's actually in charge. It's actually Dr. Claw is yeah. in charge of this thing. There's no transparency. In the cloth. So... After two hours of questions, Fastow leaves and says to McLean, I don't care what you say about the company. Just don't make me look bad. Where's that fucking lifeboat? Huh? McLean runs her story later in February 2001. All of a sudden, the stock takes a hit from $89 down to $68.50 by February 28th. Remember, though, the way Enron is able to do all this stuff with the Raptors and the outside entities is that they're hedging it with their own stock that's always going up. 
So that way they can cover the losses as long as the stock doesn't tank. But if the stock tanks, then these losses become real. March 21st, Enron stock falls to $55.89. What's what's going on? Oh my God. Skilling gets on a conference call a week before the end of the quarter. March 31st would be the end of the quarter, right? And says, Enron's business is in great shape. He's got no idea why the stock is in the low 50s. This, on that same call, is when we hear this. You're the only financial institution that can't produce a balance sheet or a cash flow statement with their earnings. <laughs> well, you, 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 well uh, thank you very much. We appreciate, appreciate it. Appreciate it. <laughs> Analysts are now asking questions. This is a big deal. You can't have a CEO go off the rails like that. When they hear that, this is blood in the water. But this time, it's not Enron that's the shark. It's the other investors, the journalists, the the short sellers, everyone else. They're circling. They know there's a weakness. They know that there's something they could take advantage of. The same carnivorous forces that helped make Enron what they were were now about to be Skilling's undoing. Meanwhile, Enron Broadband was, of course, tanking. Prices were dropping. And people literally were like, what are we doing trading this? We're out of here. But Skilling kept pushing it. He says, literally, it's going great. In late March, an Enron Broadband employee wrote to Fortune saying, quote, when Jeff Skilling says that it is, quote, absolutely not true, end quote, that there are job cuts at broadband services, he's not telling the truth. There have been job cuts of about 30%. The thing there is, guys, Skilling is literally telling people that they're not firing anyone because they did this thing called a redeployment. And within Enron, they basically took 30% of Enron Broadband and said, you guys aren't fired yet. You have 45 days to find another job at Enron. And if you can't find another job at Enron, then you are actually fired. So that way you don't have to actually say you fired anybody. You're just kind of shuffling some things around. But that person who wrote to Fortune didn't give their name because They were afraid of being in this trap again. Skilling is going hard, really hard, doubling down, hard in the paint. He says, quote, we are perfectly positioned in broadband. One employee who moved on was a longtime salesman, Cliff Baxter. He was a loyal Enron employee and sold millions and millions of dollars of Enron projects to outside investors. He was one of the people that was actually in the inside that didn't like what was happening with these Raptors, but he couldn't do anything to change it. He also stayed through all the terrible stuff until they agreed to have him move on in May of 2001. Ken Rice said he was going to leave as well. Lupai, one of the guys who led a trading department and a ton of terrible investments, left Enron with hundreds of millions of dollars in sold Enron stock. He also got divorced and ended up shacking up with his new wife, a stripper that he met and had a child with. Ah, Enron, pure love. Skilling sees people leaving one by one. In a convo with Ken Rice, he says, quote, the traders have gotten so powerful that I can't control them anymore. <laughs> oh, you're worried about the inmates running the asylum now? Maybe the culture of what have you done for Enron lately? Maybe create a toxic work environment at Enron? Maybe they created some fucking monsters there, you fucking mutant? <laughs> By June, 
Skilling was speaking at conferences and people were protesting, wearing pig masks. Security guards were telling Skilling, like, hey, we may not be able to protect you. That's how serious things got. (laughs) In June, Enron stock, $44.05 per share. It's only going lower. Six months after Jeff Skilling takes over as CEO, (laughs) he resigns. Now Ken lays back. I can't imagine why why Jeff Skilling would resign. That's weird. I don't know what could have possibly happened. Now, in August, Enron finally starts claiming a loss on broadband of $137 million. Enron stock, $39.95. What I like about this, I mean, these are tremendous losses, right? But I actually like how strong the stock price is for something that's also still clearly fraudulent at this point. It's like how many, it's like there's still people that are like, have faith in Enron for it to still be almost $40 a share. Oddly enough, Justin, in the first episode of this show, you said when people go on the ride, they want to stay on the ride. Basically, the entire U.S. Like stock market was on this ride and they, they wouldn't get off. They, they, a lot of them probably like, oh, let's buy the dip. It'll probably bounce back. <laughs> yeah. But investigations now are slowly starting. Analysts and investors are starting to circle Enron like wounded prey. But listen, before we keep going, one person did speak up in writing. They didn't go public because they wanted to save Enron. Sharon Watkins was 41 and was at Enron for years and didn't want to see it go down. But she was in a position now to actually see all the accounting issues. She wrote to Ken Lay, asking him to come clean so they could save the company. Sunlight will be the best disinfectant. How did this all go down? Well, as we said last week, we were so lucky to have Sharon Watkins on the show to talk about her experience and to shed light on what happened at Enron. Sharon, I cannot tell you how excited we are to have you on the show. You are our first real whistleblower, and I want to talk about that word a little bit later. But first, I want to start at the beginning. Before you were even at Enron, who was Sharon Watkins before Enron? Oh, my goodness. What? That's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> you know, certainly I was an accidental CPA. Um, I think I chose that major at the University of Texas just because it started with an A and was near the top of the list. Hook em horns. I know. Hook em horns. Um, never really liked it, but somehow I was good at it. I spent eight years at Arthur Anderson and then another company, Mattel Gazelle Shaft, which is no more. And then finally Enron. But I would say for the last 20 years, I'm trying to find more creative and fun things to be than an accountant. Well, you've come to the right place. I want to talk about a little bit about Arthur Anderson and your time there. I've heard you talk in interviews about kind of the culture there. You, you, you started cursing. You were drinking Johnny Walker Black with colleagues there, which I felt bad because I like Johnny Walker Black on the rocks. Uh, the, were you aware at the time that you didn't necessarily want to be doing that, that you were just kind of trying to fit in? Was that, were you conscious of that? I would say I was, I mean, there was a part of me that was conscious of the Johnny Walker Black stuff because I would describe (laughs) it as like, this has to be battery acid. It tastes so bad. And it was always just Johnny Walker Black on, on the rocks, you know, no water, no anything else. So 
I, I didn't consciously say, wow, I'm really trying to fit in. But clearly I did it. And that's what I would drink when I didn't like it. Um, and certainly the cursing slipped in very subconsciously to fit in. And do you remember how you felt being in that culture at Arthur Anderson? And I, I think you were at the Houston office, right? And then you eventually went to New York or something? Can that's you talk ex- to us about that's that? That's right. Yeah. So I was hired into the auditing the independent oil and gas companies. So it was kind of a double whammy. The fellow, My fellow male colleagues didn't really like it that there were so many of us women now being hired. But certainly those independent wildcatters, oil and gas companies were not too fond of seeing so many women. And it was amazing, you know, this Me Too movement and everything else, you know, you, you just shake your head at all the stuff we, we put up with. You know, you'd be in these audit rooms, which were usually internal file rooms converted into space for the auditors to be. And the guys would talk about their sexual conquests over the weekend and all this very inappropriate things. And they were almost testing to see whether you blushed or not. You know, would you go along? Would you be one of the guys? And, um, you know, cursing seemed to be another part of it. And that's in Houston, you know, before I even got to New York. Right. (laughs) And this is an accounting firm, right? This is like you're not at like a construction site. You're at these are accountants we're talking about. So true. But uh, Arthur Anderson's Houston motto was work hard, play hard. All right. Uh, that, that makes sense. You know, I was going to say they said work hard, play hard, but that obviously didn't apply to the women, right? Was there ever a space at these firms where you could have came in and talked about your conquest over the weekend in like graphic <laughs> details? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, that would not be appropriate. I actually had this really cool, this is before pantsuits even. You had to be wearing a, a you know, a skirt and jacket with some sort of feminist kind of bow tie thing around your neck. And I bought this suit that I thought was an incredible power suit, but it was really more like culottes, you know, like pants, but looking <laughs> mm. like a skirt if you weren't moving. And I had a partner say, oh, no, 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 not acceptable. Cannot wear that. A, um, a, male, a male partner said that. Yes. I love the thing, you know, the guy becomes a Taliban when it comes to policing your behavior. He's like, excuse me, that's not appropriate. So anyway, I was banging this stripper over the weekend. And, you know. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. Yes. And, you know, I'm fast forwarding all the way to Enron days, but a lot of the Enron folks would go to Rick's, the strip club in Houston. And um, shout out to Rick's. Oh, yeah. And um, but also the um, Arthur Anderson folks would go to Rick's. And I'm trying to remember exactly how I got roped into going one time, but they did rope me into going and they hired the first lap dance for me. That was horribly uncomfortable. Oh Oh my goodness. Never went back again. But they're trying to co-opt you into all their behaviors. Oh my God. So uncomfortable. Uh, (laughs) One of the things we've talked about on here, Sharon, is the difference between within an audit company, the kind of the accounting part or the auditing part, and then the consultant part. Can you talk to us a little bit about that difference and like the cultural differences within the company between those two kind of departments? Well, the Arthur Anderson and Anderson Consulting, they all split their revenues worldwide. You know, So a Kansas City partner would probably be close to making the same thing as a New York City partner. Not too much, you know, cost of living or adjustments. And the Anderson Consulting was bringing in tons of money and was a little bit irritated that, you know, they're having to share so much with the audit. And they finally did work a a divorce. And I think that was really the 
root cause of Anderson's audit integrity and culture collapsing because there was sort of a separation period and an alimony period. But at some point in the early 90s, the money flow from consulting had stopped. And that's when Anderson Audit started their own second consulting firm and really pushed, pushed, pushed for add-on consulting work from audit clients. And I think that's really instructive to understand kind of the the context in which Arthur Anderson was in, right? It was they weren't just the nerdy accountants; they were the nerdy accountants that had to keep the billables coming in as as part of their consulting business and helping Enron to to do all these things. Yes, yeah, so like for for instance, with Enron, the total bill was fifty two million dollars a year, you know, million dollars mm. a week, and this is back in the nineties. So that's a hefty. I mean, number one worldwide client. Million dollars yeah. a week. Half of it was audit work. Half of it was consulting. Wow, that's a lot. You can't you can't lose that. So let's go to Enron now. Were you acclimated to the culture of Enron having come from Arthur Anderson, or was it still a little bit of a shock when you when you got in there finally? Um, I would say that Enron was actually a little bit of a breath of fresh air because I had <laughs> audited those independent oil and gas companies, those wildcatters. And then in the New York office, I did litigation support. We actually worked for the law firm defending Leona Helmsley in her tax evasion case. You know, so you're around white shoe law firm, you know, folks. Then I went to work for Mattel Gazelleshaft and they had oil traders. So that I had some exposure to that trading culture at that firm. Enron felt more sophisticated, a little more polished, you know, just obviously a whole tower building dedicated, you know, to Enron headquarters in Houston. And I actually felt like they were a very grown up doing things the right way company when I first joined them. And I guess Andy Fastow interviewed you, right? Or he was the one who hired you? He is. Enron had started a partnership with CalPERS, the California Public Employee Retirement System. And I had managed an energy portfolio at Mattel Gazelleshaft, and Andy needed someone to manage a portfolio for him with this new CalPERS venture. And I had been in New York for six years and was finding myself where if I didn't leave soon, I was going to become a pretty hardened New Yorker and move back to Houston. I'll give you a for instance. I mean, the, I'm back in Houston you know, this is really before the internet, you you need some cash, it's before the ATM machines, you you know, you have to go to the bank teller to get cash. And I'm waiting in a bank line and the tellers being all Texas friendly. Well, do you have any weekend plans? (laughs) And my response, you know, I I had to hold myself back from going, what business is it of yours? (laughs) You know, and and they're just being Texas friendly. And I was, you know, already like New York. "Mm -mm, mm -mm." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've had a similar experience after 17 years in New York. I am skeptical of anyone that's trying to do small talk with me. I was like, is someone coming up from behind me? Is this a distraction? Am I going to get mugged right now? <laughs> exactly. So what was your first impression of Andy Fastow? I felt good about going to work for him. His wife worked at Enron Corp in the Treasury Department. They both had MBAs from Kellogg. Um, he seemed to be um, have no problems hiring a female executive. And some of the other people that I'd interviewed at Enron that were in the in the more oil and gas upstream, back to those independent wildcatter types, there was still a little bit of pushback on hiring women at executive positions. It still existed. I mean, Enron had a lot of in-house accountants and lawyers that were women and bankers that were women. But at one point, I got to go to the master's for an Enron boondoggle where we were flying up on the corporate jet with clients 
Um, you stay in some homes, nice dinner. You get driven to the Masters and have a day there, you know, following players, doing whatever, and then come back and, you you know, the new the next group has flown in on the jets and you're flying home on the jets. Well, I the person basically I these homes were were rented out personal homes and they said you need to find another female executive to kind of share the twin bed and the kid room that you're going to get the clients are going to get the better bedrooms you know the Enron folks would be in the twin beds upstairs and it was hard to find other female executives that weren't in the support world that were actually Mm. in the revenue world and that's when I realized oh they're making their numbers look good but they really haven't hired that many revenue producers that were female. I see. What, what kind of excuses did they do? Like, what was the language? Was it explicitly we don't hire women? Or did they do the thing of, um, I just don't know if, you know, where it's just like, uh, you know, I don't know if this person is like, did they come up with excuses uh, uh, to, to, you know, to justify those hiring practices? Well, it was more, I remember one man, you know, I was just telling him working at Arthur Anderson, Mattel Gesellschaft, I'm from the Houston area, I'm ready to get back to Texas. And of course, Enron's the place to be. And he said, Well, how interesting, you just want to work at Enron, and you think you'll be able to, huh? You know, just sort of some hostility. And you know, I had a great looking resume, that was kind of surprising. And then even while I was at Enron, um, I had a supervisor once say, Oh, you want to you want to make vice president? It's like, why wouldn't I? You know, why wouldn't I want to keep, you know, getting promotions, getting raises? You know, there was just this. And I did um, get married while I was at Enron. And so then there was sort of this pushback of, well, aren't y'all a two income family? Do you, do you need to make as much? I mean, you're, you know, so what does that have to do with what I'm earning salary wise? Yeah, one thing we know about Enron, it's that people were very much concerned about how much money people were making. It was like, maybe <laughs> maybe we're taking in too much, was was the, the whole story of that company, yeah. I have never been at a company where, you know, you were told what your bonus was, and you have to sit there and go, don't look excited, don't look surprised, <laughs> you know, say, oh, okay, you know. So it, it, it did, in the long run, you know, you just made more than you ever thought you were going to make. Yeah. Oh, man, that's so, that's so wild. And I kind of want to also ask your first impression of Scaling and Lay. So tell me about your first time meeting Jeff Scaling and what your impression was of him. He's very charismatic. He is energetic. There's a positivity about him. He's, he is sort of a natural leader in that regard. He gets people pumped, excited. You know, he was always kind of talking you know, the natural gas gas bank that he started, then deregulating power in California and power would be the next future, you know, deregulated market that would be lucrative, you know, to get into, then broadband, weather derivatives, you know, he just seemed to be a very entrepreneurial and creative leader. And then Ken Lay, what was it like meeting him? He's kind of like the sweet grandfather of Enron, right? Yes. And sometimes I say this and it sounds kind of brutal, but because of that position I had with Calpers, there were a few times that we were presenting things to the board, you know, wrapped up in all that. I, I never actually saw evidence that Ken Lay was a smart man. 
<laughs> he had a PhD in economics, though, dude. <laughs> That's so beautiful. <laughs> well, and he has a PhD. But yeah. I saw a, a Charlie Rose interviewing somebody, you know, some professor that knew Ken Lay. And the professor said he'd read that dissertation and sheepishly admitted that we probably have a lot of, you know, PhDs out there in the country that really didn't earn it. But nobody oh really reads, God. you know, these dissertations. I mean, so this professor let this guy get a PhD and Ken Lay would go on to basically use this PhD to be the platform in which he deregulated the entire energy market. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yes. Well, and I just heard from, I guess, lecture at different colleges, and I just heard a professor this week say that he had a friend who taped a $50 bill in his dissertation that he and the different ones that he handed to his advisory group um, just to see whether they were reading his dissertation and not one $50 bill was remarked on oh. or taken out. So he thinks they didn't really read it. Oh, Justin, you probably went through the ringer for your PhD. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I mean, the my committee was made up of a lot of like, uh, like uber intellectuals. So the questions would be like, on page four, you spoke about existence. Please elaborate on what you meant for the committee. You know, so it was a little different, little different process. I, I, had a, I had a good committee, but you do hear of things like that, of master's theses and PhD theses where people are like, in the question period, it's kind of clear that members of the committee didn't read it. You do hear that. Oh, man. Uh, Sharon, in the Smartest Guys in the Room book, uh, you're obviously mentioned. I went through your sections. I don't know if you've read the book yourself at any point. I don't know if that would be something you would even enjoy doing. If I were you, I probably wouldn't have. But um, they described you as three things. And this is their words, not mine. So, okay, so don't, don't, don't shoot the messenger here. They said, bright, mercenary... And ambitious. I can see bright and ambitious. Where does mercenary come from? Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call. Text or chat 988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Do you know someone struggling to figure out their mental health benefits? The Mental Health Insurance Assistance Office is here to help. Find us at insurance.ohio.gov slash G-E-T-M-H-I-A or call us at 855-438-6442. Don't wait. The Mental Health Insurance Assistance Office can help you figure out what mental health insurance benefits may be in their plan. Call us today at 855-438-6442. 
Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Um, well, I don't know about mercenary. Or is that uh, the, wrong? Yeah, that's also well, the totally New York fair. Times, the New York Times did, you know, an article on me early on when, when my name was released to the press. And they said that behind my back, some people called me Buzzsaw. And right, I, could I saw actually, that as well. I yeah. could actually understand Buzzsaw because Enron was a urgent place. What have you done for Enron lately? We're moving fast and furious. And sometimes I could basically imply that someone was an idiot without actually using those words. Oh, Sharon. Oh, these numbers. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think we need to add some numbers here, you would say. Well, I mean, someone gave a, for instance, of don't we have a risk for the price going blah, blah, blah. And it's like, uh, no, here's the way it's priced. We move this cargo straight from here to Singapore. You know, there is just no way you can get caught. Here's how it was protected. That I would be a little bit too, like you idiot, didn't you realize that there's no downside risk in this particular contract? You never said anything like, I'm sorry, I can't do your job and mine at the same time, but I'll give you five minutes. <laughs> Basically, that's a good way to summarize it. In, in one of my reviews, uh, my supervisor said, you know, Sharon, you're, just, you're very bright, but sometimes someone says something stupid and you just, you know, you slash them across the throat. And blood's pouring down their shirt collar and their shirt. And then you realize that you still need them on your team and you're up there trying to patch the, the neck, but it's just too late. And, and so I do, maybe that's what they meant by mercenary, you know, just a little cutthroat and, and not very nice all the time. But the ambitious thing that bothered Mimi Schwartz, um, she was writing the book Power Failure with me and she was talking to Peter Baer, the Washington Post journalist that, that kind of outed me in January of 2002. And he said, well, Sharon's not without her baggage. And Mimi was like, really? I've, I've been working with her for a while now. You know, this is back later in 2002. And um, she said, what, what baggage? And he said, well, her ambition for one. And Mimi just about jumped across the table and choked him. Like, why can't a woman be ambitious? Yeah. That, that's great. I didn't even think that would be an issue. That's why I didn't even ask about it. Bright and ambitious seems like a natural thing for any employee or any human to be in a company. Oh, uh, man. Never. Uh, I, I, first, I'm sorry. All the things you went through sounds crazy. Uh, I guess I want to get into some of the projects you worked on at Enron. Is that okay? Sure. So the broadband business, I'm really interested in. I think this is broad, well, the weather business, I think, is just hysterical, and I don't even understand how anyone would have let that happen. I don't even want to even get into that. But the broadband business at that time, can you kind of set up how that worked? Who's I, That was Jeff Skilling's idea, presumably, right? And then, what, it got pushed through the rest of the company? Well, and I mean, I'll just back up a little bit. You know, the gas bank that Skilling came up with was a great idea because there really were a lot of uh, inefficiencies in the market, real problems, lack of liquidity, lack of any kind of predictability for producers or end users. So it was a great service. 
Also, gas can be moved. You can move it from Canada down to Texas, Texas to New York City, Florida to California, and your gas and my gas can be interchanged. It's no problem. Um, electricity, you know, Jeff just wanted, okay, we did this great thing in gas. Now let's do it in electricity. Let's do it in weather derivatives. Let's do it in broadband. We never crack the nut on electricity because mm-hmm. it it can't be moved long distances. You know, it, those big power lines you see, the grids are losing and dropping electricity and, and you've got to have substations and other different pieces of equipment. You just can't move it as easily as you can natural gas. But broadband is even worse because your little bits of information are yours and my bits are mine and they're not interchangeable. <laughs> you know, your little bits are your photos, your payroll, your, you know, whatever you're, you're sending. And so Enron was on the cusp of cool things that are exist today, how much we're on our phones streaming, but we were just trying to jump into it, just hoping something stuck mm. and just poured way too much money down the drain. We put sun servers in hundreds of locations, never even plugged them in. <laughs> not, not like didn't even plug the, where were they just sat there? Cold? They were, we called them points of presence, but they weren't up and running on anything. Is this related? Is this how the blockbuster thing happened as well? That's part of it. We were just, we were doing like a huge, broad, let's, let's throw up everything on the wall and see what works. And this all came about because Enron had purchased Portland General Electric Mm -hmm. to have a big power presence feeding into the California market. And Portland General had laid some fiber along some of their rights away. And so that dark fiber swaps and the optics that optic cable that Portland General had was our jumpstart into broadband. But Blockbuster approached Enron on streaming videos. And we did have a contract with them, flew out to Hollywood, meeting with people, and come to find out Hollywood hated Blockbuster. So did everyone else. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they had played they had played dirty with their shelf space. You know, if, if, if we're under a contract negotiation and you're not doing what I want, then your VCR tapes didn't make it out onto the floor. Um, and so they weren't giving Blockbuster digital rights. I see. Um, wow. So Blockbuster could have been the Netflix of the time, but everyone hated them so much that it was that they exactly. never got in. Exactly. But I think Enron got kind of starry eyed, you know, the team that was able to fly out, meet with Hollywood people. There was just so much stupid money and they did a debt deal and pushed it as cash flow, free cash flow from operations. That was another thing that got people into trouble. So uh, can you explain that a little bit? I've heard I've read that one of the um, senior accountants, I think, that was calling things out at Arthur Anderson talked about this. And he said it's it's a it's weird that there's a sell happening and that you're describing it as revenue from cash flow. Can you kind of describe? I know that's kind of like in the weeds with accounting, but I, I just don't understand what it is. Well, it's like when I was at Enron International, we closed a big deal with SK in South Korea on gas distribution. And whenever you closed a big deal, you'd get a knock on the door from the finance people. And they would say, we want to see if we can do one of our off-balance sheet vehicles around your future cash flows. Like, let's take a look. What do you expect? Um, We're going to borrow money against these future cash flows. And they would use the word borrow. You know, this is debt, but we're going to 
the way we've got it working with Arthur Anderson, we're going to be booking this cash flow as free cash flow from operations, from like selling an asset or operations. I see. So let me talk this back to you so that I think I get it. So you guys close a deal in South Korea. You get a knock on the door. They say, all right, we know that you're going to make X amount of dollars over the next one, two or three years. Instead of waiting for that money to come in, let's assume that we're going to get that money, borrow against that assumption and then call that the revenue that we actually haven't gotten yet. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Man, so that Justin, mar- we're in the wrong business, Justin. We got to keep saying, I'm going to tell people we got 10 million listeners all the time because that's what we'll get in 50 years. Yeah, it was all, everything front loaded, front loaded. We got addicted to mark to market, you know, just, you know, truly um, trying to front load everything. So let's talk a little bit about how you discovered the accounting fraud. Uh, you know, take me to that day when you realized it. Now, I know it was probably you looking at like a spreadsheet or a computer screen of some kind. So it's not going to be like you were like, you know, like swinging in from the rafters or anything like Schwarzenegger. But (laughs) what was it like? You're sitting there, you're looking at these numbers. What's kind of going through your mind? And how did you even get to the point where you were even put in that position to see that stuff? Well, so, so we were just talking about the debt deals. And these would be really complex structures you know, just 25 boxes on a whiteboard, you know, where this was, the banks were looking at it like debt, but Enron was booking it like it was free cash flow. So I was used to those structures because they tried to do it on South Korea. South Korea didn't work just because of the international cash flow issues, but I'd seen those structures. So in 2001, I'm working for Andy Fastow again, working on a project for, you know, assets that Enron's got held for sale. You know, so which ones are going to sell, which one's not. That's where I ran across these structures called the Raptors. And the math didn't add up on my spreadsheet. And so the Raptors said, were, sorry to interrupt, and the Raptors were just like the SPEs, right? They were just right. a different way of describing them. Yeah. The Raptors okay, were the, the vehicle name for these off-balance sheet vehicles. So I meet with some business managers, like, okay, you've got an underlying asset. It's It's wrapped up with these raptors, tell me how it works. Well, the raptors were structured similar to some of these debt deals that got Enron in trouble. But, you know, in a normal debt deal, a bank has lent money to Enron. They're relying on the underlying asset, the collateral, you know, just like your mortgage, you know, just in case you default, the bank can get your house and sell your house and pay themselves back. So Enron had given bankers collateral, but what Enron had done is, if the collateral is not enough to pay you back, well, over here is going to be a pile of Enron stock that you can access to make sure you get your money back. Oh, luckily for you, the stock is always going up. That's it. Stock's going up. <laughs> well, so that in the long run got Enron in trouble, but I digress. So back to these Raptors, it was a similar structure, you know, that here's this pile of stock, except that the Raptors had never given Enron money. They had said that we're going to buy these assets Mm. at a certain price in the future at a profit to Enron. So Enron can lock in that profit. But the deal with the Raptors were when we take over these assets, if we can't sell them in the marketplace and make our money back, we're going to access this pile of Enron stock. So this was not balance sheet and cash flow manipulation. This was earnings manipulation. Mm. So we were taking assets, selling them into the future 
and promising the Raptors that if you're not able to achieve a return on the assets you take over from us, you can get this Enron stock and, and sell it and get, make yourself whole. And when you say the underlying asset, meaning you move this asset, whether it's like a power plant or some project of some kind, to the outside entity, and presumably you would hope, you would think naturally that this asset would appreciate or go up in value because it's a good idea. But in reality, all those projects that went to the outside companies were garbage. Is that fair? That's fair. <laughs> now, some of it were te- they were tech stocks that had dr- gone up in the big boom, but they had come crashing down. Pets.com? Did you guys do pets.com? We didn't do pets.com, but we did a few others. <laughs> we did a few others that were similar. Ask Jeeves. Oh, I remember that. Ask Jeeves. Wow. Oh, yeah. I thought that was so clever, too. I'm a PG Wodehouse fan. So. <laughs> nice. So, Would you describe what we just talked about, this accounting fraud? Would you describe this as a complex accounting fraud? Like, would you really need like an accounting degree to really understand it? Or could a layman kind of get in there and see what was happening? I would say it was very, very complex. You know, once again, 25 legal entities created for one structure. And it was meant to cause confusion. The business people that were explaining it to me, you know, I kept saying, you know, where's the third party? I don't even like, at least with our off balance sheet bank deals, Citibank's involved, Chase is involved, you know, outside bankers are giving us money. You know, where is the outside money that's coming in here? And I kept it pretty simple like that. You know, you just can't do business with yourself, you know, where there's got to be some third party money at risk somewhere. And finally, they would just throw up their hands and say, oh, I don't know, you're wearing me out. Arthur Anderson's approved this, you know, Vincent and Elkins and the lawyers have approved it. It must work somewhere. And I'm just not an accountant. I don't know how it works. Well, you know, I was an accountant. <laughs> so I just knew, you know, accounting just doesn't get that creative. You know, you it, it was like out of the fairy tales, like we're, you know, trying to spin straw into gold. It was just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. There's like, Listen, don't worry about this random Nigerian tanker that we've bought and sold to ourselves 27 times in this transaction. (laughs) Yes, just the bankruptcy. I was still there when Enron declared bankruptcy. And so many of the people left to pick up the pieces said, we've really structured our investments in crazy ways in order to to front load and do those off balance sheet debt deals. And quite often that meant not having complete control, um, just relying on the fact that the banks wouldn't take over because they couldn't operate the Nigerian barges. Um, so we, it was really just stupidity. We really did some crazy things all for front-loading cash flow and earnings. Oh, it's amazing. And it, it just time after time, Arthur Anderson signed off on it. The lawyers signed off. Was there any kind of indication of some other reason other than their billable hours that they were doing that? Like what rationale did they use? Well, the only thing I can speak to is when Arthur Anderson was tried for obstruction of justice, it came out in that trial that they do internal peer reviews and they did consider Enron their riskiest worldwide client. Yet their internal review of Dave Duncan, the partner and his team was at that out of one to five, five being the best, Duncan and his team, they ranked a two. Oof. So why do you put a two team on your riskiest worldwide client? Yeah. Um, 
yeah, know, plausible we... deniability. You know, yeah. it's just that one guy. Um, I still don't understand how Anderson signed off on these things. I really don't. And it's, it looks like they might not have. It looks like their standards department said no, but Duncan overruled them and let Enron do it. Well, you know what? Well, let me just give them a call right real quick. One second. Hold on. Oh, yeah. you got to use Ask Jeeves to find the phone number. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. I'm actually, you know, more emotionally upset about Anderson being gone than Enron because it was like my security blanket. You know, mm. they were in, in every major city and country and, you know, had this great alumni network. I'd worked there for eight years. So it's kind of depressing that that they are no more. And, and Arthur Anderson did start off as like the bastion of integrity. Like they were saying no to risky things. They were doing it the right way in the beginning. And then, of course, as time goes, you know, power corrupts and greed comes in, I guess. I think it's greed because I think you're exactly right. We were very proud to work at Arthur Anderson in the mid 80s when they walked away from all their savings and loan clients because they they said, hey, you know, the accounting that has become normal in this industry doesn't fairly represent the condition of the industry. We're walking away from these clients. So walking away from revenue. And then in the 90s, you know, with their divorce from Anderson Consulting, their partner draws were going down. They pushed out older partners that had a lot of units and promoted younger partners like Duncan. Um, and I do think it was all about greed and being able to have the same take-home pay that they had had in the past. So an 80-year-old culture can just dr- go off the cliff. Very quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wrote a letter, an anonymous letter that's infamous now, that you did not publish yourself but was now then published, I guess, by congressional groups as well. Uh, You wrote it anonymously initially to Ken Lay, kind of flagging him about this. But then you you did approach Ken Lay and say, hey, I wrote this. Let's talk. Is that is that right? I mean, close enough. Skilling quit on a Tuesday and I had just found the fraud like two or three weeks before that. And so I was dusting off my resume trying to leave the company because I thought the fraud was so bad. And Skilling quit. And I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, he's getting out while the getting's good. He'll be able to these Raptor structures were going to blow up on the company about two years later. So I thought oh, he's trying to get out and can claim that the company was in great shape when he left. So I first wrote that anonymous letter because Kinlay was going to have an all employee meeting. You know, so I set up close, you know, read read between the lines where he's saying, if anyone's truly troubled out there, please you know, come talk to me, or he named four or five executives that were kind of known to be warm and fuzzy. So I identified myself to the head of human resources, Cindy Olson, and she got me on Ken Lay's calendar for the next week. And that's when people started feeding me even more information and more pieces of evidence of the fraud. But my big mistake was going by myself. I really should have tried to find more people to go in with me. More other other people that were upset because there were other people that were frustrated because yes. they knew what was going on. But I think it, it sounds like at a certain point, you're so deep into the culture, your, your life. I mean, you were had a two year old at that time, I believe. Right. Yes. Uh, and mm-hmm. so you're a mom. You're trying to grow your family. You're worried. I'm my wife is pregnant. So I'm constantly thinking about the future and like, what am I going to do for this kid? So you kind of are locked in there. Do you feel like you were a victim almost in that sense when you were the trapped like that? Well, I, I tell you, I was very naive that I just really thought 
you know, I'm, I'm presenting facts, you know, like here's the, the Raptors owe us $700 million, owe Enron $700 million. find out how they're going to pay us back. Who lost that money? You know, we've booked gains, you know, and avoided losses, you know, based off this $700 million that's coming from the Raptors. If the Raptors are going to stick their hand in our pocket and pull out some Enron stock, sell it in the marketplace, and that's how they're paying paying us, you know, that's trouble. SEC's not going to look at that as a fair deal. So I had seven pages of memos. I had in an Excel spreadsheet that I had not created. It was a summary of the Raptors. And I also had a PowerPoint that had been presented to the board, all of it very damning, you know, very bad evidence. And so I really just felt like I'm the crew member of the Titanic saying, we've hit an iceberg, here's all the water that's pouring in, it's gonna sink us, go look, you know, sound the alarms, man the lifeboats. And I didn't think that I could just be, the truth, the facts could just be ignored. You know, that's what blew me away, you know, that, <laughs> that all these people could begin to to just ignore facts. And Ken Lay was like, I think there's a great band playing on the deck that I'm going to go listen yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. It's my favorite song, man. You got to go. <laughs> got to go dance. So when you when you brought this up to him, what what was his reaction? Well, I knew I was trying to tell him, look, Arthur Anderson's done flawed audits. Vincent and Elkins, the law firm, has signed off on some things they shouldn't have signed off on. But I really stressed about hiring an outside law firm, outside accounting firm, find out how, you know, the Raptors are going to pay Enron $700 million. Well, he was very, you know, gentlemanly, polite. It was only like a 30-minute meeting. Near the end of the meeting, he says, but you think Andy's a good CFO, right? What? Um, Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Yeah. I was like, what? (laughs) It's like, I've just told you someone's an ax murderer and you say, but he's really polite to his mother, right? Like, what the heck does that matter? You know, he's manipulated the financial statements. You know, he's caused big harm. What do you mean? Do I think he's a good CFO? I was just flabbergasted. I couldn't really respond. You know, I think I looked at him. Yeah. But my buzzsaw (laughs) left me at that moment. It just totally left me. That is, I mean, we're laughing about it now. It's so incredibly sad and frustrating. I feel like laughter is the only way I can actually handle how crazy all of this is half the time. Uh, Looking back on it, uh, who failed? Who could have kept all this from happening? 
Well, I, I certainly have spent a lot of time looking at it. And I just taught a corporate governance and leadership and ethics class at Keenan Flagler at UNC. They did these little weekend courses for their MBA students. And we were looking at the disasters and pretty much they were always successful until they weren't. And I actually think it is those little things. It only takes one or two people to to protest, come together, speak about something, and a culture stays on the tried and true versus, you know, them being ignored. Mm -hmm. I think about Arthur Anderson, Jim Hecker was a partner there. And in 96, he penned that song, Hotel Kenneth Leia, to Hotel California. Mm -hmm. And the lyrics are amazing about, you know, better have your alibis when the feds show up and I'm going to end up busting rocks. So he played that at an internal Arthur Anderson, you know, partner meeting. So what was Anderson doing knowing that Enron was that risky, you know, where they got partners writing jokey songs about it? Um, to me, that's a form of protest, but it didn't go anywhere. Can we have the information uh, for them? Because we, we, you know, anybody that does parody songs of corporate crime is really useful for our podcast. <laughs> 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 yeah, I think you can find the lyrics. The Wall Street Journal, I think, published the lyrics. They're pretty clever. I want to get to now that that you wrote this letter. You've had this meeting with Ken Lay. Nothing's now come of it. You're leaving Enron at this point. Uh, how did your letter get published? Like, who found it? And like, at how f long after you left were you then uh, in the public eye? Well, so it. You know, I meet with Ken Lay late August. At that point really an in-house lawyer kind of started to handle it. And he said, you know, we are going to investigate your concerns. We're using Vincent and Elkins. I hope you, you know, aren't too concerned about that. I know you wanted to, us to use an outside law firm, but I met with Vincent and Elkins to describe my concerns on September 10th. And the next day is 9-11, you know, the, the twin towers come down and, you know, Pentagon and, you know, the market closed for a week airlines stopped wherever they were, you know, so my feeling about the fall of 2001, besides having Enron collapse, you know, was also the 9-11 disaster. And there was just, it was a very bleak time. And I just saw people at Enron really doing all the wrong things. Now they did write off these structures. And some people have said, because they were concerned I was going to go to the press or, um, you know, go to the SEC and, you know, if if we haven't manipulated the financial statements then we won't be in trouble, but they did it in a way that you just can't do. You can restate financial statements. You can't write it off as a current, not, you know, non-recurring below the line adjustment. And everything went south very, very quickly. Um, I was still trying to interview, but after 9-11, almost everyone stopped their hiring. You know, you're just what's next. So I was actually still at the company. After Enron declared bankruptcy, 5,000 people were let go. I called up the head of HR and I said, what's my status? And she said, Sharon, if you didn't get a call this weekend that you're working for the bankruptcy estate, then you're, you're leaving. But I did have an in-house lawyer that was having me meet with different law firms that were defending the corporation, the board, executives and so forth. And he said, well, wait a minute, Sharon, let me see if I can save your job because I kind of need you to keep meeting with these law firms and I don't need you in emergency job search mode. So he saved my job for like another month is what he promised me. 
And then in January, um, a congressional committee that was investigating Enron's collapse found all of my materials that I'd given to Ken Lay in a box of subpoenaed documents. And that's what's kind of hard to explain. WorldCom was a scandal that happened pretty soon after Enron. And that was six to eight people in the CFO's office knowingly cooking the books. You know, Health South, they had two sets of books. Enron always tried to paper it like in some legal fashion. You know, we're above that. We don't, you know, break the law. And um, so when Congress was was subpoenaing information, they were sending it. The congressional staffers subpoenaed me to testify. And they said they would get a room full of boxes and they would open it up and it would look like new reams of paper. You know, just just inundating them. Their defense, Enron's defense mechanism was just swallow them and drown them with paperwork. So I feel sorry for the poor congressional staffer that was having to go through box after box. But, you know, Congress got this eureka moment, gets my materials and they um, someone leaked it to Peter Baer at The Washington Post. He was the first journalist that called me. Once that happens, you're in the public eye. I'm going to ask. What's the first word that comes to your mind when I say whistleblower and why? It's synonymous with troublemaker. And why, why do you feel that way? You know, Brene Brown talks about belonging. Everyone talks about belonging these days. Um, I'm realizing more and more in our political climate how important tribes are to people. And to blow the whistle on your tribe makes people very suspicious of you. Why aren't you going along? And it's probably puts you in a very vulnerable place, right? A, a tribe is where you're most vulnerable because you feel the most safe as well. So how did it how did it feel to be a troublemaker, as you say, for your own tribe? Well, and that's not what you think you're doing. You think you're trying to save the company. You know, mm. I want us to report on our own wrongdoing. I want us to come clean. I hope we have a chance to save the company and and continue to live. Um, and instead you're treated like a pariah, but I've now come to realize it's because you, you know, you can try to warn in jokesy ways like the hotel Kenneth Leia, but you can't come out and criticize and really openly go against what the, the group is doing, you know, cause it, it just causes too much problem. I mean, we're, we're seeing that in different tribes in the country right now, totally off topic, but Beth Moore is huge in the, evangelical Christian white world in the U.S., and she just broke with SBC, the Southern Baptist Church or convention. And that is causing huge ripple effects for white suburban women that were justifying their Trump support with, um, well, it's my my Christian duty. When a leader like her says, "Mm, mm, mm," and I'm leaving because of the SBC's support of Trump, it's, it's having them implode internally. You know, their justification is is rocked. But whistleblower is not as toxic as it used to be. I mean, you've got Edward Snowden. You've got the Florida whistleblower, Rebecca Jones, I think, about some of the COVID reporting. Mm -hmm. Um, Dodd-Frank gives a bounty program now for financial whistleblowers. It's been highly successful. It's a 10-year-old program. I think now whistleblowing is seen as a healthy check and balance to a capitalist system. But at the same time, it's not like you went back into the energy business. No, it's it's uh, I, w- I won't work in corporate America and I don't really have a tribe anymore. Mm. You know, I'm Brene Brown quotes 
Maya Angelou that the best place to be in the world is where you don't belong anywhere, but you belong everywhere or something hard for me to understand um, because it, it's hard. I think I have it on a magnet. <laughs> yes, I have it on a magnet. You are only free when you realize you belong no place. You belong every place. No place at all. The price is high. The reward is great. That's Maya Angel. Um, I think that's really top, tough to understand. There's, I guess, freedom and not having to contort yourself to belong to, you know, to be, you can be truer to yourself. You're not having to contort yourself to some tribe, but it's, it's um, no fun. But everyone's been COVID lonely, I guess. Everyone's been without their their normal uh, tribes these days. Well, if you ever want to hang out with us, we'd love to have you anytime. <laughs> Thanks. Um, when you were testifying, I saw these videos of you speaking truth to power, and then the two seats over from you is Jeff Skilling testifying, not looking at you, but saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Tell me how you felt in those moments. Well, that was bizarre. I yeah. testified in front of the House, and they were very, you know, it was an investigative committee. It was just me and my lawyer. This particular Senate committee just seemed like they were wanting a dog and pony show. My attorney did not want me to be at the same table, you know, as, as Jeff Congress? Skilling. Dog and pony show? No. Yeah. Please, yes. Sharon. Not, not in the United States. So. Yeah. So what was that like? Well, it, it was very nerve wracking going in, but my attorney had done some congressional stuff before and he always liked for me to see the room before you actually go in. So the night before, you know, he's he's gotten access and we're going into the room and you can see my nameplate, Skilling's nameplate and um, Jeff McMahon, who was also testifying. And he said, hold up, I want the lawyers at the table. You know, I, I want a lawyer between you and Jeff Skilling. You're not gonna be sitting elbow to elbow. You know, so he he told some staffers about that. Well, I lived in New York before the cabs got cleaned up. They're, you used to get into a taxi cab and sink down. You know, the <laughs> yeah. seats and the springs were broken. Well, these leather <laughs> chairs in the Senate are that old and you sink way, way down. Well, what I noticed that night is that the Senate had put really thick cushions on all of the chairs so that you wouldn't be sinking into a hole in these old leather chairs, except they didn't give one to Skilling. Oh. And so the next day, when the lawyer chairs are there, the lawyers have cushions. And Skilling testifies all day long, and he's just sinking lower and lower. Amazing. He's got five attorneys sitting behind his attorney. None of them notice at breaks or anything. His own lawyer is like six foot two. Skilling's just five foot ten. His own lawyer could have given him his cushion. And for all that money, they never noticed that poor Skilling's sitting in a hole, not on a cushion. <laughs> oh my God. But that kind of made me feel like, okay, I'll, I'm going to be okay in this hearing. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you did amazingly. It's some great, was some of the best C-SPAN I've ever seen. Um, so I heard you say this in an interview, and this will be our last question. And thank you so much for your time. Uh, and I, maybe I'm paraphrasing here. I don't know if I got it exactly right. It's something, it's something like, um, things go wrong when smart people stop asking questions. And which is incredibly ironic because we've been playing these why commercials in our, in our yes. series here. <laughs> and so tell me about that statement or that that 
thought? Well, what Enron really was a fun place to work. It was entrepreneurial. <laughs> it did hire some of the brightest people. Um, but just like my discussion with those business managers about the Raptors, where they finally just got annoyed with me and just said, hey, we, we don't really understand these structures. Um, we're just assuming Arthur Anderson does or someone higher than us does. Enron had, because of Jeff Skilling, this rank and yank performance review. Every mm -hmm. six months, you're on the performance um, evaluation table with a, first, a forced bell curve. So it was always, what have I done for Enron lately? I might have had a great year last year, closed a great deal, but I got to do the same thing this year. So that's what made smart people didn't like some of these structures, questioning them, wondering how could this be okay? They didn't get good answers, but they just finally said, hey, what have I done for Enron lately? It's not my job. I'm not in the accounting department. I'm not in the finance or legal department. I got to get nose to the grindstone and keep working on my deals. And there are 24 people that are felons associated with Enron. Over, over 12 went to prison. And not maybe five of them are the perpetrators of the fraud. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are these business managers that they had too many fingerprints or the transactions were done within their departments. And, you know, someone, you're just an unwilling participant and you spend two years in a federal prison or three years in a federal prison. Um, you know, I, I would say there's a big cost to smart people stop, you know, just stopping asking questions. They don't get good answers and they stop. Don't do it. You might be sucked into fraud. I think it's always a problem. I can't remember who said this, but it's like when you start believing your own marketing too much, that's when exactly. you really get screwed. Uh, Sharon, is there anything that we missed uh, that you want to share with us about your story or um, anything that happened? Well, I, I would just encourage people to always speak up. I really, in, in analyzing some of these scandals, it does appear that it just takes one or two people speaking up internally and the, the bad behavior will be avoided. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's just people need to have just a little bit of courage and, and speak up. Sharon Watkins, uh, one of the three time people of the year. Uh, and it has been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. So to round out the timeline here, after 9-11, the SEC starts really investigating Enron. Probably in more normal circumstances, I would have had a few more words to say about September the 11th. Just like America's uh, under attack by terrorism, uh, I think we're under attack. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, now we've got the SEC uh, uh, inquiry, informal inquiry. In October of 2001, Enron reports a $618 million loss. <laughs> the stock drops to $38.84. After the SEC probe announcement, the stock tanks again, $20.75. Anyone see a pattern? November 2001, Enron admits to more losses and redoes their accounting for years prior, like in the 90s, and they, they made even less money. December 2001, the SEC is investigating Arthur Anderson, and we all know what happened with them. They went out of business, and on December 2nd, 2001, Enron files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. The stock closes that day at 26 
cents per share. I like 26 cents per share because there's still one guy that's like, you know, it's we like got the same. This. Yeah, it's like the same guy that's just like buying Movie Pass right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been great. Could have been great. I have 8 million shares. <laughs> just wait till that goes to $1. So <laughs> Arthur Anderson, of course, is gone. Ken Lay would be guilty of multiple counts of securities and wire fraud. But before he actually ended up going to his final sentencing in 2006, he dies of a heart attack. He was going to probably go away for like 45 years. Jeff Skilling, on October 23rd, 2006, Skilling was sentenced to 24 years and four months in prison with a fine of $45 million. He was eventually released after serving half of his sentence on February 21st, 2019. Apparently now, I've read that he's doing, he's in the crypto business, which is a bastion of honesty, and I can't wait to hear the good things that he does. <laughs> Richard Kazi was sentenced to 66 months in prison for securities fraud in November of 2006. Andy Fastow did a six-year prison sentence, which I think he got off very lightly for that. And now he's like touring the world doing speeches about honesty and and how he made so many mistakes. Thanks, Andy. We really appreciate it. Cliff Baxter, the salesman we were talking about before, he ended up taking his own life. He couldn't deal with the shame of what he had participated in. Thousands and thousands of Enron employees lost their entire pension and had to keep working well into their retirement years because of them. And not to mention the millions of dollars spent in California during the energy crisis and the people that had to choose food or electricity during that time. I remember this story. I remember Enron. I think it took us doing these episodes on Enron for me to understand how distinctly evil Lay, Fastow, Skilling, Kazi, all these guys, Arthur Anderson, how much greed drove these people to do life-threatening things to people. Yeah, especially when you hear the telephone audio of telling power plants to power down and then people laughing about all of the money that they're going to make, right? Yeah, it's like, you know, this is, you know, it's evil territory, you know. It's not even it's not even greed even. It's 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 a level worse than that when you when you're turning off people's electricity and then giving them a bill of like $900, right? It's like you're just you're 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 hurting people. Um, yeah. And they call yeah. it white collar cl- crime, right? White collar crime. It's not a big deal and I hope this season, I hope these episodes, I hope the stuff that we talked about this season shows you that white collar crime in many instances is worse than a violent crime. It, it oh, destroys works. lives. I'd rather be mugged. Like, as long as Absolutely. you don't shoot me, yeah, I'll give you my wallet, and then you get the cash, and then I call a number and turn all the debit cards off. These guys took away people's future. They mugged people for their lives. Yeah. You know, those those pensioners and things like that. You, I mean, that you know, it, I always like the, the short sent, you know, prison sentences, and then also it's white-collar jail. You know, yeah. they, you, know they, they, you know, they're not doing... You know, they're not putting them in there with, uh, you know, it's not Oz. Did you notice yeah. how Oz didn't even have corporate criminals on it? 
of course, they wouldn't be able to survive in Oz, you know? It's like the, um, I think I even Jeff Skilling was in prison with Kevin Trudeau. I think they were in that fancy uh, club fed camp. I'll have to double check that. But these are the stories that we wanted to tell, and I hope we had some, I, I think we had a good time doing it. It was a really long road to do all these things, but I, I'm just so grateful that we were able to do this show, and I hope we could do a second season. Cena, let me tell you something. It has been the honor of my life to do this first season with you. And it's been great illuminating the dishonest people that are parasites on the society and advocating for the victims and giving them a voice in this. So just you know, keep a lookout for all the fraudsters and scammers out there, everybody. Keep sending us all your recommendations. And this season couldn't have happened without Hazel Bryan being with us every step of the way. Thank you so much, Hazel, for all the work and, and dealing with all the crazy shit that we, we put you through during this time. Marie Anderson, what a saint of an editor. Uh, Emily Fusco, I've, literally the words that you wrote were like the blood of the show. Uh, thank you for all your research. Um, Hannah Shaw, our intern, our legal intern, took the weight of reading court opinions off my shoulders and it was the best thing for my mental health that I could have possibly asked for. And big thanks, of course, to uh, Henry, Ben, and Marcus for giving us the opportunity on the last podcast network to do this. So big thanks. We'll see you next time, everybody. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Master Force Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Master Force tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details.